My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 38, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 17 and 18, Leviticus 12, and Psalm 73. Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephdim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came out and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is My Banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Exodus 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people in Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gorsham, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord 
had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hands of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge, while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them His decrees and instructions, and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Leviticus 12. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean, as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot offer a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Psalm 73, a psalm of Esaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for you, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure, and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Okay, this part of the story reminds me of the concept of rite of passage rituals and the stages of rites and the process of of the change from what was to what is or will be. So a rite of passage ritual in our modern world can be someone's like first birthday party, their quinceanera, a bar mitzvah, a graduation, driver's license, and we'll talk about a few more. The what and the contextual how vary, but the overall process is the same. There are three stages that we know about in social psychology, and we talk about it, this might sound strange, but in a consumer behavior class. Three stages, detachment, liminality, and a new status, an aggregation to something new. I want to focus on this in-between stage called liminality. Many of us feel this in-between stage if we move, as we grow up, as a relationship changes, as we progress through our careers, and so on. How we respond to liminality on ethnicity or nationality, on home, adulthood, girl to a woman, boy to a man, engagement, first pregnancy, COVID, cancer, students in high school, students in college. Sometimes when you don't know the if, the when or how, some sort of tension or transition will be resolved. You can be pretty confident you're in a state of liminality. Remember, liminality is the middle stage of a three-stage process of transition that starts with detachment, moves to liminality, which can feel a bit bewildering because it is a little of the letting go and a bit of the reaching for. And then in the last stage is aggregation to a new status, an association to and a disassociation from. So liminality is a trusting God challenge, and if we don't put our trust in him, We have to ask ourselves, where are we going to put it? What are we going to reach out to in these stages of discomfort? 
In this story, we know from the restarting of the Israelite calendar at the Passover and Exodus from Egypt that they arrive where they're going by Exodus 19, verse 1, on the first day of the, f- of the third month. This means they are in between or in the wilderness for a full two months. Alicia Britt Coley, author of Anonymous, Jesus Hidden for Years and Yours, speaks about how there are a number of years in between Jesus's childhood and adulthood, which are not recorded, but that season of quiet anonymity was a preparatory space that many of us may feel unsettled, but these liminal seasons in our lives can actually be surprising spaces of spiritual development. Alicia encourages us to resist resentment, repurpose our time in these spaces for deep growth instead of drift and bewilderment, and resolutely live out God's will and way as he has given to us through scripture and called. Sometimes it's just a small whisper into our hearts. So this this stage of liminality, I think, will be a theme we'll keep talking about for the next few days as well. Dr. Carmen Imes points out something else interesting in this part of the story. So if you remember, Miriam was named prophet in 15 verse 20. And while I read over this and considered it, you know, just an anachronism maybe, Dr. Carmen Imes tethered it back to the other place in Exodus we just read about where Aaron was named a prophet when God was talking to Moses and Moses said he couldn't speak well. God said to Moses, you will be God to him and Aaron will be your prophet. And what does Aaron do? Aaron passes on what Moses tells him to the people and to Pharaoh. He's a representative. This is a micro modeling of the larger story of the Bible, where God calls us to be a blessing to others and become a kingdom of priests. God gives a portion of power and authority, and he gives agency to us to bear his name and image. And he wants us to model and be the exemplar modeler. It's interesting how the most effective form of marketing is word of mouth and how it requires this passing on of the word, of the message, of the story, of the wisdom, and the discernment of a practice, right? But marketing is a little bit different than the perhaps the game of telephone. And I don't know if you've ever played that. That's probably dating my age. But the funny part of playing the game of telephone where you whisper something to someone that whisper, tries to whisper the same story to the next person and it goes on and on is that the story usually changes quite dramatically um, by the time it reaches the end. But what we don't want to happen is that exact thing. We don't want the story to be corrupted along the way. So there has to be this really structured um, and important way of advising and succeeding down the story in the next part of the information. Remember, information is different from knowledge. Dale Adkins does this cool TED Talk which differentiates information from knowledge. Information is something we can Google, whereas knowledge is the ability to recall the right information at the right time in order to be helpful in a specific situation. If we have to search for information, we don't know it yet. The model is being presented in the larger story is this succession of taking the commissioning, the covenant that God has, he is graciously offering, and then putting God on display, helping others navigate to him for atonement, interceding in prayer, and being generous with our resources to help those who are suffering in need. Right after the verse states Miriam is a prophet, it reminds the reader that she is Aaron's brother, drawing our connection back to his role too, as a prophet for Moses. Miriam is taking the song and singing it to the women. She's passing on the message and rallying the women. A cool ancient cultural tradition Dr. Imes draws our attention to as well is that women often played drums and sang welcome home songs to men from battle. 
Dr. Imes also encourages the readers of Exodus to remember the role of women alongside the male leader actors, Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, Moses' father-in-law. There was this bravery also of the Hebrew midwives, refusal to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Uh, That was Shipra and Pua. There were Moses' mother, the daughter of Levi, and his sister Miriam, even Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' wife, who prevented the death of Moses via a seemingly critically important circumcision, and the women who take the wealth of Egypt, and now the women who celebrate what God had accomplished. Lastly, Dr. Imes drew my attention to this beautiful tradition of naming our children with the intention regarding the meaning, and sometimes it is a person from our family in a past generation or someone from our faith, like a Bible name. She describes how there are six or seven women named Mary in the New Testament, but that in Greek, the original language of much of the New Testament wrote these names as Miriam, and how this is likely a testament to the importance they place on Miriam in the larger story of the rescue and her role in it from Exodus. In Dr. Imes' free Exodus class on the Bible Project, she points to Richard Bauckham's research that studied the frequency of Miriam's name in the first century, and it was about 25%. 25% of girls were named Miriam. I mean, today in the 21st century, my sister's first name is Marie, which is a derivative of this name. And I think it's so cool to reflect on the power of a name to inspire us to call on our hearts and minds to remember the story. We are the story that is still unfolding today. And if we zoom out, there's this interesting pattern worth noting that Dr. Imes describes in this uh, same Exodus class where Genesis and Exodus are before Mount Sinai. Uh, Leviticus is at Mount Sinai, and Numbers is on the way out on the other side of Sinai, which we'll be coming to next. To the people's complaints in Exodus, God seems to be far from accommodating, and in Numbers, God seems to be more confronting. Dr. Imes describes this possibility like parenthood, where our first lessons to our children, when they don't know yet, are much more accommodating, and we focus on modeling, explaining, and practicing. Whereas after they know, we might be far more likely to confront and sanction a poor decision after the child knows. Granted, in real life, we know that children are different from adults and need many more reminders as their brains are still developing. But adults struggle too, especially if they have put into practice the wrong habits. Habits are hard to change, and that's exactly why practicing God's habits, putting our trust in Him regularly, practicing His ways for us can help us to remember and practice God's centrality to the story and His ways. In Exodus, in this part of the story in the wilderness, Dr. Imes points out that we see God's response to people's ungratefulness and rebellion with gracious provision and cycles of work and rest, which is a contrast to working for Pharaoh. Yahweh has a different model for what that looks like, and that's going to take some practice and repetition. And then one important note on leadership, uh, particularly in this case of of liminality and in the larger Exodus story, it's found here. So in Exodus 19, there's this connection to what's happening in Exodus 4, which we read, where Moses also speaks with Jethro, the priest, his father-in-law. In both stories, Jethro offers a blessing of peace. In Hebrew, the word is shalom. In both stories, Moses' wife, Zipporah, travels with Moses' sons. There are some unexplained things related to Moses' wife and sons in Exodus. We know Zipporah and her sons were with Moses on his way to Egypt in Exodus 4. But then after that emergency circumcision of his son, the text isn't clear whether she went on with Moses to Egypt or went back to her father. The text seems to read she she was not with them in the Exodus because here we read that after Moses 
had sent um, away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jephro, received her and her two sons in Exodus 18.2. Dr. Imes describes how sent away could be depicting a conflict, perhaps even a divorce, but yet in verse 6, she is returning to Moses in the wilderness with her father and her two sons. So I'm not sure why a divorce would happen. It is still an unresolved, unexplained thing. Dr. Imes points to a recurring theme where in Exodus 4, Aaron and Moses meet, perhaps for the first time, on the mountain of God with a kiss. And here in Exodus 18, Moses greets Jethro with a kiss near the mountain of God. Aaron and the elders of Israel meet in both Exodus 4 and 18. Note how Moses tells Jethro everything. He recounts the saga. Notice how Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done in rescuing them. Jethro recognizes and affirms that God is greater than all gods. Notice how some of the leadership was ascribed by God in the story so far, like assigning, uh, calling Moses and Aaron. Also notice that the active leadership by the midwives, Moses' mother, uh, Moses' wife, were not, uh, were not told to them. They weren't told to do those things, or at least there's no record of that. But rather, they initiated and purpose towards God's way, trusting in him. Similarly, there is no record that the elders of the Hebrew people were ascribed by God as a way to lead, but rather, this was their design, and God called them into it once uh, they had created the structure. Leadership can be directly ascribed by God, and we are reading that it can also be achieved through faithfulness and trusting and prompting and serving God's purpose and community. Here, too, in Exodus 18, Moses was not told by God to meet with Jethro or for Jethro to meet Moses and share his ideas. This was organic. In verse 13, Jethro is expressing concern about how much time Moses is spending essentially acting as judge, listening to disagreements. Uh, The word they use here is heavy. It's too much for one person. Jethro advises Moses on a new leadership design in verse 21, this more dissemination of power and authority. So again, it's similar to how God works, where he's giving out a portion of authority and power instead of centralizing it to himself. Uh, that's the model, and it's sharing the burden of leadership and, and, and judgment and what needs to happen, like a circuit of judges. Moses listens to this advice and implements it. As a professor of innovation, I love this. It also points back to me to Genesis 1, where God is giving out this commission for us to rule together and how collaborating in context for discerning ways to be leaders and image bearers and name bearers to serve God's community are necessary for our flourishing and a big part of our God-given purpose. This was a new context they were living in. A new organizational leadership was structure was needed. And I love how Moses was open to counsel and how Jethro had the confidence to listen and share his ideas. And then lastly, in Leviticus, we read eating rituals previously, and now we're reading about physical rituals related to childbirth. And for me, what's important is what Dr. Mackey, Dr. Walton, and many other scholars point to, that these rituals have to do with mortality and not morality, because God is immortal, and life itself, Deuteronomy 5.26, anything that has to do with bodily fluids in the ancient Near Eastern world, and sort of, in a way, scientifically, bodily fluids leaving the body are associated with mortality and the possibility of death, particularly if it's too much um, fluid or blood, because we all know we're made of about, what, 70% uh, water. So birth is essentially interesting because it's dangerous and wonderful. There's this possibility of new life, but also the risk of death. The point, in no way do I think the scripture is trying to say that women are immoral or having a baby is somehow bad, but the 
purification part is a reminder of our mortality and a reminder that death is in stark contrast to Yahweh, who is life itself. Rituals are interesting. We can sometimes become self-righteous and let the rituals take on a life of their own, and we can perform them without a care to their meaning at all. Or we can see rituals as a way to keep us focused on the story, the truth, and a way from getting lost in our own passions and narrative, which can further alienate and dislocate us from God. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.